So we last week we launched a new series in the New Testament book of James, and by reading a number of New Testament passages, we painted a picture of Jesus' family dynamics, his family, which is something I don't know that we've ever done here in our uh, soon-to-be 10 years of existence. We talked about the fact that Levi had real brothers and sisters. We talked about how this idea of Semper Virgo or Ever Virgin that came out of a council of men that met long after Jesus' death is ludicrous. It's possible that the New Testament writers were referring to Jesus' figurative brothers and sisters, but it's near certain that Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters like uh, James. And we say half because, as you'll recall, Joseph was Jesus' adoptive dad. Uh, God the Father was Jesus' dad, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We didn't clarify this last week, but this happened miraculously. It was not the result of some kind of mythological paganism where the divine and the human procreate. That's been suggested by some that did not happen. We refuted last week a challenge to Christianity and that some have said over the years that Jesus claimed to be God and that his family was 100% in on the hoax. No, they were not. We showed you last week, according to the record, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They thought he needed an intervention. They indeed tried to intervene, not understanding that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And last week we left off with Jesus' own half-brothers telling him, yeah, we've seen you do a few miracles. We're just not buying that you're David Copperfield. So peace out. Take off. Go do this with the city folk and see if they believe you. We can't accept that the same little kid that we play Mario Kart with is the savior of humanity. I guess you're right, Jesus. A prophet's not accepted in his hometown, so why don't you go elsewhere? Go prove it. And here's what happens. Jesus leaves town, just like his brothers tell him to do. And he does go to the big city. And he does do exactly what they dared him to do there. He preaches the word. He teaches that he's God. And it's for this claim that he's arrested. It's for this claim that he endures a false trial. It's for this claim that he's put to death. Why did Jesus die? I think all of us should have a correct answer to this question. He didn't die because he was philanthropic in nature. He didn't die because he cared for widows. He didn't die because he loved the little children, all of which is true. He died because he claimed to be God and because the political leaders and the religious leaders together were peeved by this claim enough to take his life. The two forces together agreed that Jesus must go. His following is growing. Our power is decreasing. He's got to die. And case in point, if you'll recall, 
the Roman soldiers saying when they came to arrest Jesus, for what cause, or Jesus saying rather, for what cause do you put me to death? And do you remember how they responded? Because you, a mere what? Man claimed to be who? God. That's why they put Jesus to death. That came directly from the soldiers' mouths. And if you're here today, I want to encourage you to address this, to consider this within your own mind and heart. I mean, this you have to wrestle with this. You can't just ignore this and put this off. Jesus said that he was God, and emphatically so. So the claim is either true or the claim is, is false. C.S. Lewis said either Jesus was liar, lunatic, or Lord. So let's give up this crazy notion that he was just a good teacher. Let's give up this, this idea that he's just a great philosopher. The claim was not made by any other founder of a major world religion. Only Jesus said he was God. So either, Lewis argues, he was a psychopath or he was profusely dishonest or he was the God who created humanity inserting himself among humans. Truly. So Jesus is dying. Who's in attendance? His mother is there. Can you imagine, by the way, mothers of sons, uh, in particular, seeing a man whose fingers and toes you counted affixed to a wooden cross. Can you imagine seeing uh, a man whose frame in infancy you once coddled being nailed to a Roman cross you feared this day? would come if you were Mary. That's why you tried to intervene. That's why you tried to bring him home. Last week, I mistakenly said from memory, I caught it from memory in the second service that Jesus' brother was present at the cross. That was John that Jesus said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. But I don't think it's unreasonable to conjecture that the family was present. I mean, this was the death of a sibling. This had been encroaching. Everything pointed to this event taking place. It's not a huge leap to envision other members of the family, including brothers and sisters, there in that moment. So Jesus dies. His family knows he's dead. We assume that the entire family, though some may still think him crazy, are mourning his loss. And then three days later, something unprecedented happened that we're going to talk about in length in several Sundays from now. In the history of the world, it hadn't happened. Since then, it has not happened. This is the moment when everything crazy that Jesus said was 100% vindicated. Jesus' fingers and toes, after being wrapped in hundreds of pounds of linens and spices, begin to curl and unfurl. He begins to inhale 
The wage of sin is death, but because Jesus had not died, death could not contain him. And then the apostle, did I say because Jesus had not died? He understood what I meant to say because Jesus had not sinned, death could not contain him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we, we read that Jesus appeared then to who? To James and then all of the apostles, James, his brother. Can you imagine this? James opens the door and there stands Jesus, a guy that James or those he was closest to had just watched be brutally executed and Jesus says, I'm back, my little brother. Here I stand. I told you so, little brother. I conquered death. And it's at this point in the life of the younger brother James that he could no longer deny the deity of Christ. It's at this point that the switch gets flipped. James is, at, prior to this point, lukewarm at best. He sees Jesus face to face. He reconciles that his, his older brother is also his savior, his substitute, the, the creator God. By the way, others have taught throughout the centuries that basically a stunt double died in Jesus' place, that Jesus didn't really die? Do you know who would know the answer to that conspiracy theory? I posit his family would know. I mean, if you're a mom, do you think you'd recognize a stunt double 10 feet in front of you while you're clinging to the foot of the cross? You think you'd recognize some subtle facial features, some birthmarks? May fool you on the 10th row of the MGM Grand at a David Blaine performance. Not going to fool mama. This is one of the moments where we'd love to have the tail of the tape when James sees the door open and Jesus steps. I mean, what happens in that moment? Do they embrace? Do they weep? Does he bow down on the ground and lift his hands and eyes to Jesus' face? What does that moment look like? In church family, I hope that we all come to a moment in our faith where there's this level of certainty in our hearts that was in the heart of James in that moment that we don't doubt any longer, that we know that Jesus is arisen. So his own brother, this guy who told Jesus to prove it in the big city, now we will see, have the privilege of becoming a leader, a pastor, a preacher, and eventually a martyr. James once tried to get Jesus to stop saying crazy things, and now for the rest of his life, 
James will say the crazy things that Jesus said. What could possibly account for a cynic turning into a saint? Apart from seeing a dead brother become alive again, what was in it for James? Telling a story like this. I mean, James died believing this. And, and for those of you who may disagree with the historical record of God's word, I would say the, the burden of proof is on you. What other alternative is there for a changed heart and mind of a brother that once took swirlies and noogies from Jesus, believing later that he's God? How many of you would worship your brother as God? How many of you would say, I'd be more inclined to worship him as Satan? No, don't answer that. I'd submit to you that when a normal individual dies, we tend not to devote the rest of our lives to worship them. We mourn the loss and we what? We move on. Not with James. In fact, you know what James, the brother of Jesus, did? He goes and he joins a church. Today, there's billions of Christ followers worldwide. You know how, how many there were in the book of Acts when James joins a church? 120. That's how few Christ followers there were on the planet. And James and his brothers are among them. This is what we read in Acts 1.14. And these with one accord, so there's a unity in the early church, were devoting themselves. In other words, they patterned this prayer together with women and who? Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, who are among the first converts to Christianity post-resurrection of Jesus, his family members. They believed. And this includes Jude, James' other brother. Jesus' other brother, Jude, also becomes a great pastor. Last week, we looked at how the book of James began. Let's look now at how the book of Jude begins. Jude, chapter 1, verse 1. A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of who? James. Notice he doesn't loftily say, a brother! Of Jesus Christ. Because even Jude understands his deference to Jesus. I'm, no, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a brother to this dink named James. Joseph. Let's even take it this far. Wouldn't you say that Mary and Joseph had a pretty impressive family? Pretty impressive family. Some of you need to know that the most amazing ministry you will do isn't through yourself, but it's through your kids. If you raise them according to God's ways. Joseph never wrote a book of the Bible. His sons did. 
You can be humble, you can be poor, you can be blue-collar, you can be from and die in Stratford, Wisconsin. You can be hard-working, you can be very effective also if you raise your children to love and serve Jesus as Mary and Joseph did. We don't know a lot about Joseph But I don't know about you. I'd say we know a lot about him by looking at his family. By simply looking at at his boys. By the way, don't look at my kids and project uh, judgments on uh, who I am, please. Not yet. Acts 15. There's a a closed-door, invite-only meeting among spiritual leaders in the faith. The Apostle Paul, by now, is there. The Apostle Peter is there. Barnabas is there. And they're looking into, um, at this point, whether or whether not Gentiles, non-Jews like you and I, ought to be able to enjoy pork, bacon, and if you and I, Gentiles, might be exempt from circumcision. These are the issues. I mean, when you say this has huge ramifications, this discussion in Acts chapter 15, particularly the bacon element. I mean, it's a big deal, right? And in verses 12 and 13, the, the room falls silent in, in one of the most important meetings in the history of the world. It's James, not the Apostle Paul, not the Apostle Peter, that speaks up. And he begins with this. Brothers, listen to me. That's what he says a few verses later. Listen to me. In other words, Paul, listen to me. Barnabas, listen to me. Peter, listen to me. Do you see what's happening? The most venerated saints in historical Christendom are listening to the brother of Jesus. He has, even over the Apostle Paul, even over the Apostle Peter, who Jesus said that the church would be built on, they're listening to James. What's your point, Pastor? My point is that James spoke with authority, not only that, but he held authority. Later in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 19, Paul would have this 15-day meeting with uh, the apostle Peter, and the only other apostle that he wanted to connect with on that journey was who? It was James. He saw James as a spiritual Overseer, not even the Apostle Paul himself was a renegade. He submitted to the, he said, hey, James, give me my my performance review. James had leadership. In conclusion, this morning, I want to share with you the end of James. Not the book, but the man. Historical records tell us that James was murdered or martyred about the year 62, uh, 63 AD. 
Jesus' bold little brother indeed stayed the course. He didn't crumble. He did not waver. Uh, the Apostle Paul even would later give us, uh, give him rather, a nickname. Early church historians tell us this. James the, anybody know? James the Just. James the Just. It was one of two nicknames, in fact. The other is a little more unusual. He was called Camel Knees. And it wasn't because his knees looked like biologically those of camels. It was because James prayed so much on his knees that they became calloused and hardened. History records that very religious people took James, Jesus' little brother, to the top of the temple, the pinnacle, and they threw him from it. For the same reason, they crucified Christ. Because Jesus claimed to be God and because James repeated what Jesus had said. They did so openly, they did so publicly, they did so shamefully, just like they'd done with James' elder brother. History records that they did so with James, and he was tough. How do we know that? History records that he did not die, so they stoned him, they beat him until dead. And now Mary, Jesus' mother, has another son to bury. And check this out. History tells us that James' successor, James' successor in leadership in the church, James himself likely chose before death because he knew it was coming, he prepared for it, and that it was one of his brothers, who some historians named Simon, other historians named Simeon, I mean, think about that. What a family. What a family. Can you imagine the, the heart of James? You, you kill, you kill my eldest brother Jesus, no problem. I'm here to preach. I'm here to tell the lost about Jesus. You kill me, there's nothing to fear. We've got another brother. His name's Simon. I mean, we start to wonder, like, if these guys had beards and made duck calls for a living, right? These dudes are tough. My goodness. They're durable. What an amazing family this is. And again, how in the world do you account for it? What motive could they possibly have had? There was no fame. There was no glory. There was no fortune. There was a death. There was a resurrection. They themselves no longer feared death because by God's grace, their big brother had already conquered it. Amen? Are you alive? So we ought not to just admire this amazing family. We ought to join the family. 
Jesus said, whoever does the will of God, he is my what? My brother, my sister, my mother. Jesus is saying to you today, I'm willing to be your big brother. I'm willing to love you. I'm willing to encourage you. I'm willing to be there for you. I want to help you. How many of you ladies would say, I always wanted a big brother. Jesus says, I'll be your big brother. How many of you ladies wanted a boy? He says, I'll be your son. You'll be my mother. I'll love you like I love my own mom. If you'll do what I tell you to do. Jesus invites us to join his family. And if you're a dude in the room, Jesus is, he's like the big brother who says, hey boys, come on, we got stuff to do. We got a church to build. We got orphans to care for. We got widows to take care of. I need you in the family. Harvest your strength for the kingdom of God. Quit sitting on your laurels and do something for the kingdom. Amen. Father, I pray, Lord, What a remarkable opportunity we have to spend several months hearing a testimony of of you and who you are from someone who was so close to you in your own little brother. These are his words that we will delight in and savor, and enjoy, and we thank you, Lord, for them. And I pray this morning for anybody in this room who may be living their life as the little brother James was prior to Jesus' resurrection, that you'll continue to move along the spectrum of belief, and that ultimately you'll stand there and say, I'm willing to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. I no longer doubt. I have full confidence in the Savior of humanity being Jesus, that he took care of my sins. He's preparing a home for me in heaven. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. Everything changes for me in this moment. Lord, I pray you would have that interaction, that face-to-face experience with some in this room who still have doubt in their heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, the preaching is done. Um, I want to take a moment or two and um, share with you a few things from our annual business meeting. So um, here we go. Um, Dennis, would it be possible if I grab a stool? I don't have anything under my legs after last night. Thank you. Great. Um, I want to share with you uh, some, some thoughts that I started having about a year and a half ago. Thank you. 
Dennis is here both services, has been for 10 years. He's an awesome asset to our church, isn't he? Great guy. I, uh, a, a few, a couple years ago, a year and a half, two years ago, started really feeling like um, our elders meetings, when we had 75 people, weren't very long. They were maybe 45 minutes, an hour. Started getting, as the church grew, hour and a half, two hours, two and a half, three hours, three and a half hours. Looking at all kinds of stuff from profit and loss statements to balance sheets to budget versus actuals to people problems to building plans uh, to prayer over those who have physical needs and so forth and so on. And, and they just did everything. And it was fine. And it was great. And it was awesome in the beginning. But inevitably, I felt like a need for another, not only one, but two leadership structures underneath our elders at the Mill Church. One is that of the biblical role of deacons, which are those who love hands-on ministry, love fixing things, love mowing grass, love shoveling snow, love building, construct, constructing systems of, of, of uh, infrastructure and, and building plans and so forth and so on. Um, also, a financial advisory board so that the elder board didn't have to spend an hour looking at book reports, not that they're not good, thrilling. Robin, you did an excellent job producing those for us. Um, but a board to kind of digest that and put it into bullet points for a group of guys who feel called to be pastoral and shepherding and not necessarily accountants. Okay, so we began in our elder board meeting to, to prayerfully consider um, adding additional layers of leadership at the church. And before I tell you where that has fallen, I want to recognize the elders who have served us faithfully, some uh, for nine and a half years, uh, others uh, for um, really five, six, seven years, um, and they are... Uh, Al Mikulski, who's not here in this service this morning. Gary Lehman, who attends our, our Edgar location. Keith Bruzewitz. Dennis Lee. Dennis Wenzel, who just brought um, this stool up to the front. Tom Curtis. Those are the elders who have served faithfully um, for many, many, many years. And through this process of really determining, you know, I love counseling, I love hospital visitations, I love teaching the Bible, I love these elder-like responsibilities. Um, we had some on our elder board who said, you know what, I am a blue-collar guy, or I just love fixing things. That's what I like to do. I like caretaking facilities. I like doing more of those deacon-related tasks. And so I'm delighted to uh, share with you that Dennis Lee and Tom Curtis and Keith Bruzewitz have decided to be reassigned to that deacon role. Dennis Lee, Tom Curtis, who, by the way, runs our 410 Ministries, which 
uh, does household repairs for those who can't afford uh, the labor. We, we donate the labor and, and they purchase the materials. So Dennis Lee, Tom Curtis, and Keith Bruzewitz, would you join me in giving those men a hand for their service over the course of a number of years? So I want to recognize the remaining elders then who are Al Mikulski, Gary Lehman, and Dennis Wenzel. In this process, we also knew that if we reassigned that we'd need to buttress again our elder board by adding more individuals who could be pastors and shepherds. And I'm delighted uh, to tell you this morning, I sent an email out, I believe on Friday, that Jason Cavadini, Nick Bansick, Denny Christensen, Eric Jonas, and Johnny Pangborn from our Edgar location are elders and additional elders that we are recommending to our congregation to be our pastors, our shepherds, uh, the prayerful overseers, uh, the spiritual fathers of this location. Uh, you have, as active members, if you're a member of the Mill Church, up to 15 days from Friday to give any reasons where you may say, you know what, I saw this individual stealing a two-by-four from Menards, and you need to know about it, okay? If you know anything like that, that would cause us to reconsider any or all of these recommendations, we'd love to hear from you via email or handwritten letter uh, within 15 days from Friday, from two days ago. Um, so nearly two weeks uh, from now, that date, I don't recall what it is exactly, is in your email. So regardless of whether um, these uh, individuals uh, are confirmed and announced publicly as installed as elders, it's an honor to be recommended. So let's celebrate Jason, Nick, Denny, Eric, and Johnny. So in addition to Dennis and Tom and Keith, in addition to Dennis, Tom, and Keith as deacons, I'm also excited to tell you that I am appointing as deacons Jason Kruger and Nate Heeg. Jason Kruger and Nate Heeg. Nate, you agree to that, right? Okay. I was just kidding. He, of course he did. So let's give uh, Jason and Nate a hand. All right. So you'll see how that fleshes out in the future. It's just a little announcement on how leadership is broadening. We have more people. There are more responsibilities. We need more uh, levels of influence and, and responsibility. Now, I want to give you an update on our property. I want to remind you of what we set out to accomplish. We set out to accomplish raising a million dollars as a church, and we set out to accomplish raising a million dollars from within our community to build a church and community center. That was our goal. That was clearly presented. We told you we needed both things, both rocks to fall in order to build a community center in addition to a church. So we launched Bold in 2017. And thus far, we have received 
uh, upwards of $630,000 into the BOLD initiative. That initiative will expire in December of this year. So we're tracking well, okay? We're tracking well. We, uh, by way of a miracle, will reach a million dollars. We're kind of tracking toward 850, 900K at this point, but you never know what God's going to do. He surprised us last year with a couple major unexpected gifts, so we're going to continue to trust him. So let's celebrate over $600,000 received. After we launched Bold, we launched an initiative called Stratford Loves Kids. You didn't hear a lot about it. It was kind of incognito. That was the way it was designed to be. And we, a team of faithful people at the Mill Church, approached roughly a dozen families or individuals that we felt like could drop a big rock in the bucket toward our goal of a million dollars. Not all of the phone calls were returned. Some of them were. We had some wonderful meetings that we were inspired by. But the report that I'm bringing to you is that the initiative thus far has been relatively uh, not productive or not as productive as we'd hoped. We have $400 in the bank account from the Stratford Loves Kids initiative. And we're grateful for the $400. Amen? All right, let's celebrate $400 to the Stratford Loves Kids initiative. So after a number of no's, um, the board felt like it'd be a good thing to approach a local businessman who's not affiliated with our church, who knows Stratford very well, and say, help us diagnose We feel like we're doing a noble thing. We feel like we're trying to build an indoor play area for children so they don't have to drive to Colby in the marsh field. We feel like we're trying to to do a daycare, a commercial daycare, which Stratford does not have. We feel like businesses could use this for their employees. Um, It would be convenient. Why is this idea not setting fire? Why aren't people partnering with us and getting behind with us? And this, this businessman... Uh, who was so generous of his time and his knowledge, said, you know what, Pastor Stratford and Marshfield, frankly, are two worlds apart. He said, Marshfield is a community that heavily invests into itself. Stratford, historically, has not been that way. Stratford people are okay with driving as a bedroom community to Marshfield or to Wausau in order to take advantage of other services that other people have paid for. That's what he said. He said, don't be discouraged. He said, keep your head up. He said, keep plugging. But ultimately, I'd advise you to put a line on it and to build your church. In other words, with inflation going up at 3% a year, with, with the realization that even if you did have a $200,000 gift, you still have 800000 to go for it to become a reality, I'd recommend that you consider starting with your church and doing a community idea down the road, switching the plan. And so we then approached John Nystrom of the YMCA, who just raised $11 million. I said, John! How come you can raise 11 and we can't raise one? What's going on here? He said, Zach, I'll tell you what, Sam. 
He said, your efforts are telling you that your church family desires a building, that they're willing to finance that building, that they want to be permanent, that they don't want to lease forever, that they want a home on the, per- on the property you've purchased. And it's also telling you that the community doesn't feel like a community center at this point is a great investment. It's exactly what your efforts are telling you. And so at our business meeting on a Sunday two weeks ago, we let our congregation know this, and we asked them what we ought to do about it. We uh, admitted a willingness to plow forward with Stratford Loves Kids to continue to ask. We've got 35 or so uh, targets 28 of which we have yet to, I don't know that I did that math right, um, roughly 23 of which we haven't yet approached, should we plow forward? And um, the thought was there, let's switch the phases, let's get a shovel in the ground, let's not let inflation rise another 3%, let's reward our church family who have been giving toward this project with a home as soon as possible, and let's postpone the gymnasium for a future phase. Let's switch the plan, gym for sanctuary. Let's also reduce the size of the building. Let's get it to 10, 11,000 square feet instead of 15,000. Let's get it to a $2 million to $2.2 million budget instead of a $3.4 million budget. And it was a unanimous vote to proceed with a project in that manner. So... While we've hit a bit of a setback or a bit of change of plans, I am delighted to tell you that our bank is willing to loan us $1.2 million. So if we can raise eight hundred dollars we're at a $2 million project cost. If we can raise a $1 million, we're at a $2.2 million cost for this building. And in May of next year, 14 months from now, as soon as a thaw comes out of the ground, that could be earlier, we don't know, we're going to start constructing our church, our future home. And that is, as of right now, the plan. If we get a phone call back and somebody says, I changed my, my mind and I want to give you a million dollars. By the way, it's not too late for that, okay? Then we'll consider that, certainly, and what we can do with those funds. But... Um, This happens all the time, I'm learning. We shoot for the moon. If we miss, we land amongst the stars. We're still going to have a beautiful, brand new, uh, stunning building to worship in. It's going to be roughly twice the square footage we have now. And so um, I look forward very much uh, to that day. What time is it? 9.40. Does anybody have a quick question? Just off the top of your head or two. Not everybody was at the meeting. Quick question or two. All right. Well, I'm happy to uh, answer your questions if you have some uh, via email, Zach at the mill.church, Zach at the mill.church, and we will uh, continue plotting forward. Father, we pray that you would bless our offering today, Lord. Um, you own the cattle. On a thousand hills, God, you could build um, 
you could build the Taj Mahal over there on that hill for your worship, Creator God. And we just trust you. You're faithful. We love you. We want to honor you. We want to be great stewards of what you've given us. And we just pray that your will will prevail in your providence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.